Good morning. Well, we will be continuing our study in the exciting book of Acts, and we will be looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And the question this text will be answering for us is this. How can the word of God continue to increase and spread even when conflicts threaten the church? So Acts 6, 1 through 7 is asking this question. How can the word of God continue to spread and increase even when conflicts threaten the church? And this is an important question because no church is immune to conflict. This is because no church is made up of perfect people. Sorry. (laughs) Each and every one of us is messed up or broken and limited in some way. Sometimes these church conflicts come from us sinning against one another, and sometimes church conflicts happen simply through miscommunications or other innocent mistakes. However, if not handled well... Any conflict has the potential to spread and grow and wreak havoc on a church. Kent Hughes tells the story of a church in Dallas, Texas that went through a very ugly split. Lawsuits were filed against one another and eventually the higher authorities in the church's denomination even got called in to help sort it out. And during the hearings, as they're trying to get to the bottom of what is causing this group to fracture, they learned that the conflict in this church all began at a church dinner when a certain elder received a smaller slice of ham than the child next to him. Ham, not even ribeye or anything. It was ham. (laughs) And the local newspapers, of course, got a hold of this story, and the church's reputation was severely damaged in that community as a result. All over the size of of a slice of ham. And I'm sure many of us know firsthand, especially those of us that have been in the church long enough, how dangerous poorly handled conflicts can be. Like rust, they they can eat away at a church's unity and love, making the church brittle and weak and ultimately severely limiting or even completely destroying the church's witness in the community. And this is what our enemy, the devil, loves to see happen. He rejoices. It delights him when conflict spreads through a church. He loves when churches are known for their disunity and hatred rather than their unity and love. And so behind every church conflict, from those caused by blatant sin to those caused by just simple misunderstandings, our enemy is there seeking to bring harm to Christ's church and his witness to the world. He wants nothing more than the spread of God's word to come grinding to a halt over poorly handled conflicts in the church. Satan hates Christ's church, and he will do anything he can to hurt it. And already in the book of Acts, we have seen how Satan has been trying to hurt and attack the church. He used the Jewish religious leaders to persecute and attack the church. In chapters 4 and 5 of Acts, we saw that the apostles had been arrested. They were warned not to, to speak about Jesus anymore, and they were even beaten for speaking about Jesus. 
But we saw that this did not stop them. And they continued going around and proclaiming the good news about Jesus and even were rejoicing in the fact that they had been considered worthy to be treated shamefully on account of Jesus' name. And last week, we saw how Satan tried to attack the church by compromising its purity. Satan convinced Ananias and Sapphira to try to lie to the Holy Spirit and bring corruption and deceit into God's church. However, God dealt with that by killing Ananias and Sapphira, and Satan saw his plan backfire. Instead of hurting the church, Luke tells us that a great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things, And believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. So in Acts so far, it's like everything Satan has tried to do to hurt the church and stop the spread of God's word has failed. It's failed. And at this point, Satan is more than a little frustrated. And so I imagine he calls his smartest and most cunning demons together for a strategy meeting. The meeting's agenda is simple. Let's figure out a plan to stop the spreading of God's word and the growth of this church. So as the demons slink in and find their seats, they can just sense the tension in the room. Satan is not happy. In fact, as he quickly makes clear, he's downright furious. In a matter of weeks, their enemy has grown from 120 people huddled together in an upper room to now well over 6,000 people with more being added every single day. They must find a way to stop God's word from spreading. So ideas are batted around, and before long, a plan emerges. And with a confident smile, Satan dismisses his demons and sends them out on their mission. So let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So here's what's going on. The early church has been experiencing massive amounts of growth. Thousands of new believers have been pouring into the church and its organizational structures just haven't been able to keep up. Because just a few chapters earlier, Luke had shared with us in Acts 4, 34 and 35, that there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid them at the apostles' feet, and this then was distributed to each person as any had need. Apparently, however, though, as the church continued to grow, things began to start slipping through the cracks. It's getting harder and harder to keep track of all the needs in the church, and so eventually, certain widows got neglected. And there's nothing in the text that leads us to conclude that this was done maliciously, but it was happening nonetheless. And this was a problem because the care of widows was not something optional for the church. It wasn't something the church should only do if it had extra time and extra resources. No, it was vital and important for the church's witness and their faithfulness to Christ that they care well for widows. Later, James would write in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
So in providing faithful care for widows, the church was living out its faith. It was visibly and tangibly displaying God's heart for the weak and vulnerable of society. So listen to some of these passages from the Old Testament that speak of God's concern and care for widows. Psalm 68.5, God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. Psalm 146 verse 9, the Lord protects resident aliens and helps the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord tears apart the house of the proud, but he protects the widow's territory. Isaiah 1:17, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah 22, 3, this is what the Lord says, administer justice and righteousness, rescue the victim of robbery from his oppressor, don't exploit or brutalize the resident alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Zechariah 7, 10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the resident alien or the poor, and do not plot evil in your hearts against one another. And I could go on and on and on. God cares deeply about the weak and vulnerable in society, and he calls his church to do so as well. As God's children, we are to imitate our Father in his care and his concern for widows. And this is something the early church was wanting to do. They were trying to do. But due to the speed and size of the church's growth, some widows had ended up neglected. However, the problem was that it wasn't just a random group of widows that had happened to be overlooked. It was that the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked, while the Hebraic widows were not. So look again at verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows, the Hellenistic widows, were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So the Hellenistic Jews were primarily Greek-speaking, whereas the Hebraic Jews were Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking. But behind these languages lay lay significant cultural differences as well. The Hellenistic Jews were Jews that had come to Jerusalem from their homes spread throughout the Roman Empire, and they were much more influenced by Greek culture than the Hebraic Jews who lived in Jerusalem. So there was this insider-outsider, this us-versus-them dynamic that was going on between these two groups. So here we see the first part of Satan's plan to hurt the church and slow the spread of God's word. The enemy was trying to use a conflict to split the church along cultural lines. And so whether intentional or not, the oversight of the Hellenistic widows posed a significant problem for the early church. Matt Smethers writes, Acts 6 is far more than a culinary quibble. The apostles were faced with a natural fault line that threatened to fracture the very unity Christ died to achieve. Christ is wanting his church to be a beautiful picture of the new humanity he is creating in himself. In the church, 
It doesn't ultimately matter what your ethnic or your cultural, your socioeconomic or any other background is. All that ultimately matters is your union with Christ. Through repentance and faith, Christ brings you into his family and he gives you a new identity. You are now first and foremost a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. That is your primary and ultimate identity. However, this conflict was causing the church to fall back into their old cultural groups. And if something didn't happen soon, the church would split along these cultural lines and the enemy would have succeeded in slowing the spread of God's word and the growth of the church. So this is the first attack of, of the enemy on the church that we see in this passage. He is seeking to spread disunity and division in the church along cultural lines. But there is another more subtle attack that the enemy is launching against the church. Look at verse 2. The 12, that is the 12 apostles, they summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. So apparently, the news of this conflict is spreading throughout the church, and people are coming up with various ideas on how we can address the problem. And a popular solution seems to be that the apostles should handle the issue themselves. After all, they are the leaders, and so they should get out there and personally make sure all the widows are fed. But here we see the brilliance, the evil brilliance of Satan's attack on the church. Satan has correctly understood that the church's power is the word of God. It is God's word that is calling people from his kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. It is God's word that is growing and building Christ's church. And so in order to stop this movement, Satan realizes he must find a way to stop the preaching of God's word. So back in chapters four and five, he had tried intimidating the apostles into silence, but that hadn't worked. So now he is trying to distract them into silence. He is wanting the apostles to become so preoccupied with good things like feeding widows that they neglect the preaching of God's word. Satan is happy for all the Hellenistic widows to get fed, as long as that means that the apostles give up preaching the word of God to do so. Satan's aim is always to silence the word of God, and he will do whatever it takes to accomplish that goal. So Satan's attack on the church is twofold. First, he attacked the church by spreading conflict and division along cultural lines through the neglect of the Hellenistic widows. And second and more subtly, he attacked the church by trying to get the apostles to address the conflict in a way that distracted them from preaching the word of God. So these are the threats the church was facing. Let's see how the church responded. Look with me at verses two through four. So the 12 apostles, they summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, 
it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here we see God's grace and wisdom at work among his people as they come up with a solution that provides for the widows and doesn't distract from the ministry of the word and prayer. So let's look first at the apostles' refusal to get distracted from prayer and the ministry of God's word. Notice that in verse 2, the apostles say that it would not be right for them to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. The apostles are not saying this because they think they are above waiting on tables. They are not thinking that they are too good or too important to serve widows. Absolutely not. The word right carries the idea of pleasing, acceptable, or desirable. So it is not an issue of right and wrong, but rather one of priority and ultimately faithfulness to God and his call on their lives the apostles correctly recognize that they cannot do everything in the church. But what they must not do is give up preaching the word of God. This is the non-negotiable for them, and it is this priority that must be protected even from good things like serving widows and solving a church conflict. But why? Why is prayer and the ministry of the word so important? Because it is the word of God that builds and grows the church. To neglect prayer and the word would be to neglect the very life source of the church. It's like saying, I'm going to give up breathing to devote more energy to seeing. Seeing is good and something we want our eyes to do. And it's important that our eyes do it. But we are not going to be able to see for long if we give up breathing. Breathing is essential for our body's health and well-being. So if I want to keep on seeing, I must keep on breathing. And the same is true for the church. The church that gives up prayer and the ministry of the word will not stay a church for long. It may continue to exist and even look nice and fancy and successful on the outside, but it will be without its power, you can be assured. Because it is the word of God that builds and grows the church. And look at how Luke describes this in verse 7. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. It's like the word of God for Luke has taken on a life of its own as it spreads and conquers and brings more and more people to faith in Jesus. All throughout Acts, Luke is drawing our attention to this active, powerful word of God that goes into the darkness and conquers for Christ. Patrick Schreiner writes, if the triune God is behind his word and the message concerns Christ, there is no impeding it. It will conquer, it will progress, it will multiply. The word has an active force in Acts. And it's not just Luke that thinks this way about the the word. The whole Bible has taught us this about the word. In the very beginning, God spoke 
the universe into existence by his powerful word. Where there was once nothing, God spoke and the world came into being. And later, it was God's word of promise that called Abraham and made his descendants into a great nation. God's word was creating a people for himself. In Ezekiel 37, God uses his word to bring life to a valley of dry bones. Just listen to the life-giving power of God's word. Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of the valley It was full of bones. So picture this, valley full of bones, Ezekiel's right there in the middle. It says, the spirit of God led me all around them. There were a great many of them on the surface of the valley and they were very dry. Then God said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel wisely answers, Lord God, only you know. (laughs) God said to me, prophesy, prophesy concerning the bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. While I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. As I looked, tendons appeared on them, Flesh grew, skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man. Say to it, this is what the Lord God says, breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. The breath entered them and they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. God's word is bringing life out of death. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. God says, for just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. In Hebrews 4.12, God describes his word as living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Romans 1.16, Paul describes the word of the gospel as the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. And in Jeremiah 23.29, God says, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that pulverizes rock? What's the word picture there? God's word is a powerful, unstoppable force. And this is why 
Satan is so desperately trying to distract them from the word of God. But this is why the apostles say in verse 4, no, we will devote ourselves. We will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word because the apostles knew that if the church was going to survive, it must feed on the word of God and stay humbly dependent on him in prayer. This was the main thing for the church. And as some have wisely said, the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. And this is exactly what the apostles were committed to do. They refused to get distracted from the main thing God had called them to do. However, in refusing to give up preaching the word of God in prayer, the apostles did not neglect the care of widows. Instead, they came up with a wonderful solution that enabled them to devote themselves to the word of God in prayer and address the conflict that was threatening the unity of this church. So look again at verse 3. After summoning the whole church together, all 6,000 and plus of them, the apostles say, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. So the apostles rightly recognized that it is not okay that some of the widows are being neglected. That is a problem that needs a solution. And so they call the whole church together to address the situation. And I think this teaches us something absolutely beautiful about Christ's church. The church is made up of many members, but it is one body. And so if some of the members are hurting, it's not just their problem. It's a body problem. It's a church problem. And this was powerfully illustrated for me back in the fall when my wife had surgery on her middle finger of her right hand from a softball injury. And even though it was just one of her fingers that was operated on, it had a massive effect on her whole body. Her whole body had to get used to not being able to use her right hand. She had to figure out new ways to eat, new ways to brush her teeth, wash her hair, write, type, cook, and on and on and on. This was not just a finger problem for my wife. It was a whole body problem. And the same is true for the church. The apostles rightly saw that this was not just a Hellenistic widow problem. This was a church body problem. Everyone needed to be involved in finding a solution. So the apostles call everyone together and they task the church with selecting seven men whom they could appoint to this duty. However, they weren't just looking for seven warm bodies to do the job. They directed the church to find seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. And this is because character and godliness matter in Christ's church. These men were to be known for their faithfulness to Christ in all areas of their lives. This was not just a job for anybody to do. It was a job for those who demonstrated humble submission to the Holy Spirit's leading in their lives. Men who had the wisdom needed to be able to solve this issue facing the church in a way that served and blessed all those involved. And thankfully, there were men in the church that fit that description. Look at what Luke says in verses five through six. 
So this proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Paramenus, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And interestingly, all of the names of these men are Greek names. Though it's impossible for us to know for sure, it seems very likely that this majority Hebrew congregation chose seven Hellenistic men to oversee the care of all the widows, Hebraic and Hellenistic. Matt Smethers notes this, the very minorities feeling the sting of unfair food distribution are the ones giving a voice, tasked and empowered to make decisions on behalf of the whole church. It's a beautiful display of love and unity. And what is the result of all this? We've already seen it, but let's look again at verse 7. So the word of God spread. Don't miss it. That's the result of what just happened. The word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests, even the priests, became obedient to the faith. Well, I began this morning by saying that this text is answering the question, how can the word of God continue to increase and spread even when conflicts threaten the church? And the answer that we have seen in Acts 6, 1 through 7, is that the word of God will continue to increase and spread even when conflicts threaten the church when the leaders refuse to be distracted from their devotion to the ministry of the word and prayer and instead appoint godly, wise people of character to address the conflict. So what I want to do now in our final few moments together is to offer a few applications for us today. First, I want to speak briefly to my fellow elders. Brothers, our marching orders are clear. We are to devote ourselves, to give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There will always be pressures on us to get distracted from this all-important task. Many things will battle for our time and attention, but brothers, we must not let even the good things take us away from what Christ has called us to do. What New Covenant Bible Church needs from us above all else is our ministry of the word and our prayer because it is God and his powerful word that will grow and strengthen and increase his church. So fellow elders, let's give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of God's word. And second, I want to speak to our deacons. Though the word deacon is not mentioned in this passage, I think it seems clear to me that what we are witnessing here in Acts 6 is in the appointment of these seven men is the birth of the ministry of deacons. Here we see the church appointing godly, wise people of character to address conflicts and needs in the church. Sounds like deacon ministry to me. So dear deacons, and those of you that are aspiring to become deacons this summer through our training, 
your service to Christ and to his people is vital to the health and growth of this church. Your work and your labor of love directly supports the spreading of the word of God and our church's witness to the world. What you do in your service and labor of love matters. It matters. And we are all so very thankful for each and every one of you and the ministry you have in our church. Lastly, I want to offer a couple applications to all of us. As a church, let's commit to regularly sitting under the ministry of the Word of God. Let's prioritize gathering with God's people each week and hearing God's Word preached. Let's commit to willingly and joyfully submitting ourselves to the authority of God's Word. This is how we as a church will grow and flourish. Genuine growth will not happen apart from the Word of God and prayer. So each week, come ready and eager to hear God's word. Pray for God's spirit to empower the preaching of his word. Ask God to cause his word to bear fruit in our lives for our good and our growth in Christ. Let's be a church, New Covenant, that loves and prioritizes and cherishes God's word. And as Christians, let's commit to giving prayer and the word of God priority in our lives and in the lives of our families. There are so many things that can distract us from this commitment, but let's allow God's word today to reshape our priorities. Remember, the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. So let's commit to devoting time in our lives to hearing from God in his word and praying to him. God's word is powerful and effective. So let's be people who unleash that power into our lives as we commit ourselves to prayer and to the word of God. Let's pray together.